Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, uh, the traffic is probably getting back to normal. Things are calming down. Santa Claus, in the form of Xi Jinping, has left Johannesburg. FOCAC 6 is in the record books. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation and what happened. We're going to bring you two perspectives today to discuss, one from a kind of broad journalistic perspective about what the key themes and stories were. And then the other part, we're going to dive a little bit deeper to get uh, a business person's uh, view on, on what FOCAC is. And so we'll, we'll bring you some different aspects of it. Looking back on this massive event, uh, historic, according to President Jacob Zuma of South Africa, 48 countries along with China, uh, and of course, the headline, the $60 billion financial package. Kobus, why don't you, before we get too deep into this, give us some of the highlights as you saw it, especially because you were on the ground there and what the feeling was uh, and some of the headlines. Well, one thing that surprised me was that FOCAC was quite a lot more low-key in terms of uh, its, its presence on the streets in, in Johannesburg than, than we had expected. You know, kind of, I know that at previous times FOCAC in Beijing was, the entire Beijing was covered in posters. This time it was, you know, you didn't see a lot of it except for newspaper headlines. Um, it was obviously big news, you know, kind of especially the the deals that came out of it were big news, um, and also all of the all of the countries that participated. So forty eight countries participated. So there were a whole lot of African leaders in town. Um, the the biggest news was the sixty billion dollar financial package, um, targeting ten areas, which include uh, industrialization, infrastructure, financial services, and so on, um, and also the fact that it was a summit level event. And if I I, I, I might be wrong, but I think it, it was the first time that FOCAC was a summit since two thousand and six. Um, so it was a bigger FOCAC than usual, um, and you know there was also a little bit more focus on security, which I think was 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 a, a newer a newer trend um but lily was actually there actually in the in the room lily what was it like to well, cover it actually oh, actually before we get to lily let me just first introduce lily uh Sorry. so to, to no problem we want to, don't want to get out of ourselves for those of you who are familiar uh with with the show and you've listened we've had lily on before lily guo is the courts correspondent based in nairobi who uh was on assignment at focac 6 uh, and just to follow up on Kobus's point, Lily, what was the themes that you kind of take, took away from, from the event? Well, one theme, I mean, so I hadn't been to the Philcock summits before. And um, and I think in general, China, you know, is always pushing this win-win cooperation. Um, but I did get a sense that this time they the focus, there was, they were just, in the different speeches, um, she or whatever official was speaking was always dropping um they were always dropping things about how this is going to be good for Africa and how China was going to help with Africa's industrialization and Africa's agriculture and manufacturing. Um, and a lot of that $60 billion is meant, a lot of those sectors are meant to really focus on, the, I mean, those sectors are industrialization and manufacturing and things like that. Um, so that was the main thing that I took away is that this summit, and maybe also because it's in, it was in Africa, um, this summit really was to assure African leaders that China is still... Um, you know, despite the slowing economy, China is still committed to the continent, and uh, and that they're they're going to help um, Africa grow and develop. You know, there was this real positive vibe, especially in the media coverage. It, you know, it looked like African leaders were just ecstatic over what they were seeing at the summit. 
and, and throughout the summit and in the, in the week leading up to it, one announcement after another, $6.5 billion for infrastructure development for South Africa, $1.5 billion for railway expansion in Kenya, debt forgiveness in Mozambique. I mean, it seems like the Chinese were spreading the goodies across the continent as a way to kind of garner this this positive vibe that clearly kind of came through. But I'm wondering, is that, you know, is that artificial? And, and let me just give an example. When I was in college, I used to, I, I was the party guy for a period of my time, and I had all the beer and all the booze in my dorm room. Everybody came to my room, and I was everybody's best friend. <laughs> the minute that I decided, like, I didn't want to drink anymore, and I didn't want to hang out anymore, you know, with, with that, all of a sudden, nobody comes to my room anymore. Is China the party guy who brings the booze? And then, you know, and that's just the reason why everybody's so happy. It, it just seems to me that there is a big disconnect between the money that China is giving and the substance of the relationship. Yeah, I think that, the, I mean, with the, the financial package, it's it's pretty vague exactly how it's going to be used, what time frame it's going to be used, and whether, I mean, Deborah Brodigan has brought up this point of whether, um, whether the these African countries can even absorb that much money? Can they afford to pay back these loans? Um, I mean, some countries have canceled some of their credit lines because they, they just can't afford that. Um, so it is hard to say whether or not, I mean, you do have to look at the projects on the ground and whether they actually get started, whether they follow through on them and what the impact is. And I think that's what I found kind of hard at the at the summit is there's so many announcements, there's so many, there's just so much hype and it's hard to, um, you know, it's not there that you're going to figure out what the what's really going on and how beneficial this really is. It's also, you know, it's it's also amb- the numbers themselves are sometimes ambiguous. So it's you know, kind of, it's still difficult for me to hundred percent understand how whether all of the the sixty million or how much of it is actually new money and how much is it of it is a kind of a repackaging of older things that have already been pledged that are now repledged. You know, kind of, it's it's difficult for me to work that out. Mm-hmm. Um, Deborah right. Brautingham on her blog, um, China Africa: The Real Story, also gave a very useful breakdown of the different kinds of support, different kinds of debt and so on, which, you know, which, which made it much, much easier to understand. Yeah. And I was asking the, um, I was asking somebody from the Chinese embassy in Nairobi kind of consistently like, so is this definitely within three years and is this, all this money is new money? And they said yes to both of those, but it seems like people aren't sure that that is, that really is the case. One of the other, yeah, because I've seen it, I've seen it questioned left and right whether this really is yeah. new money or so, and it was one of these weird like ambigu- ambiguities in the discussion. So yeah, one, and I bet, oh, yeah, and I bet that they, they don't. I bet that people, the, um, a lot of people within the Chinese like foreign diplomatic court, I bet they're not even sure. You know, one of the other kind of themes that emerged from this that's rather significant was that, in comparison to past FOCAC summits or conferences. Uh, which have largely largely focused on trade and economic relations. Uh, this year, it, it it kind of broadened the discussion a lot more, particularly related to security. So, part of the the sixty billion, a small part, sixty million, in fact, uh, will go towards supporting the building of the African Union's new twenty five thousand strong multinational standby force, and that was interesting in part because the FOCAC summit this year comes on the heels of the Mali terrorist attack. It also followed 
the killing of a Chinese hostage by ISIS in Syria, and a heightened awareness by the Chinese of the security threats that Africa poses for Chinese investors and Chinese nationals on the continent. And so I wanted to get a sense from both of you, starting first with you, Lily, if you got this perception that, or if you felt it, that the discussions had widened out beyond just trade and and economics to also include, uh, say, security, culture, education, and some of the other kind of uh, those other parts of a relationship that make it more comprehensive. Yeah, I mean, she, in his uh, opening address, he talked a lot about uh, how they were going to provide more scholarships and more training for African technicians and bring Africans over to China for training and also the opening of these cultural centers. Um, on security, I want, so one of the questions during, the, during one of the press briefings with, I think it was with the foreign minister, um, one, a Chinese journalist asked, um, you know, are you more concerned about security after the Mali attacks and um, it's just generally Chinese workers being on the continent and in high risk areas? And his response was kind of, uh, I was surprised because his response was like, well, tell me, tell me a place in the world that isn't dangerous to do business. And um, we, we're not Chinese, they're not targeted any more than any other nationality. And there's no reason why they should be asking for more protection. Um, and I just thought that was kind of a bizarre response, given that Chinese companies are working in higher risk areas. Um, it's not like they're just in, um, you know, you know, they're just out in like, any other place where a foreign company is doing business. And that was um, from Zhong Jianhua, who is the, 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 one of the most senior uh, Africa diplomats for the Chinese government, the foreign ministry. So this is a very high-level point of view that's coming out that's basically dismissing some of the security concerns. Right. So they guess, I guess they don't want to give the impression that that Chinese workers are under any kind of security that, or that they, or that, or or maybe that the, that the, this money is actually for Chinese in Africa. They want they want to support the view that this is for uh, peace and security in Africa, which she also mentioned in his speech. But you know from your reporting, I mean, it's also it's also you know kind of ironic in the sense that you know the the recent report that came out that's saying that sixty percent of all Chinese people who are killed overseas are killed in Africa, and of them the majority are killed in South Africa. You know, kind of. So he's literally in the country where the most Chinese people are being are being killed, and also, as everyone knows in South Africa, targeted for actually being Chinese because of, I, you know, kind of perceptions that they that they carry more cash. Sure. You know, so it's, it's a but, very kind of ironic position to take in this particular city. But Kobus, here's the problem. Imagine if Zhong Jianhua said, yes, we understand all of this and we're going to set the expectation that we can somehow protect our people overseas in places like Mali. Well, then you're going to start to see that the expectation of, of Chinese expatriates, you know, in the farthest reaches of the Congo, Mali, other places, are going to somehow expect that their government will protect them when, in fact, the Chinese really don't have any meaningful way to actually project force to protect them. So in some ways, Lily, I, I, you know, it's the only thing he could have said because right. they, they simply can't you know, do what, you know, they don't have a SEAL Team 6 that's going to go in and rescue people out of, uh, you know, South Sudan. Yeah, yeah, oh, no, yeah no, so, so they, so, so, so I guess, you know, the point is that they, you know, they're boxed in, in one sense, because on the one hand, they, they feel the domestic pressure rising from their own people saying you need to protect our people overseas. But on the other hand, they really just don't have the resources to do it. So I think in some ways, he's in a difficult situation there, but he does have to address it. Uh, you know, to say that we acknowledge that it's a problem, but at the end of the day, there's really a, we're not going to do very much. Right. 
But I mean, also, you know, kind of to be fair, the, the, the Chinese have also for a long time supported these kind of multilateral, you know, umbrella organizations. They, you know, they, they have a, a strong history of supporting the AU generally. Um, and, you know, and it comes on the on the heels of the of the support that she announced in New York, you know, two months ago. Um so that you know, where they also announced more support for the AU, so it it does it does fit into a kind of a wider theme of the way that you know of, of general support for the AU as well. Another issue that was of big interest and concern for people, uh, particularly in the West, about the for, the Forum on China Africa Cooperation Summit, is wildlife and the ivory issue. Uh, there was a lot of talk that this was going to be a milestone event where China would make some very uh, important policy shifts on its ivory trade and also do more to support uh, the enforcement and the um, you know, protection of African wildlife. Lily, did you see much on the wildlife side? Well, I, I didn't really. And I emailed, I mean, I, I was asking the African Wildlife Fund because I saw them, they had an event the night before and they were saying how excited they were that now it was going to be um, on the agenda. But the only really mentions I saw were just general, um, it was just generally that China would do more to help uh, protect Africa's environment and wildlife. So I, but I don't know, maybe I missed it. So I was, I don't know, did you guys see it? I didn't see it. And I, I think, I mean, I think see it. yeah. it's significant that it was even mentioned, but there wasn't anything concrete about it. You know, I think China missed a really important opportunity here because, um, you know, earlier this year, Xi Jinping announced that they were going to implement a phased ban of the domestic ivory trade in China. And then they didn't follow up with any of the details. And there was a lot of expectation that those details would come at this event. And I think a lot mm. of people were expecting that says, OK, you made the announcement earlier in the year. It takes you time to formulate the policy. Um, Kobus and I had heard rumors from wildlife activists that there were going to be some very strong policy shifts made in the final communique, which doesn't seem like it came through. And right. and I think this was a really big missed opportunity for the Chinese because they had this big stage to do to, to do something dramatic and they didn't take it. And I'm starting to think that their credibility in this space with the policy on wildlife is going to fade pretty quickly unless they actually do come out with the details of that of that policy because it does seem like in Kenya, Tanzania, and parts of South Africa, uh, patience with the Chinese on the ivory issue is, is growing very thin. What's your perspective from Nairobi there? Um, so another thing that somebody with um, the African Wildlife Fund said is that China should actually be working, it should be the U.S. and China working together on the poaching issue because the U.S. is the second largest consumer after China. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting point. And he also, uh, this is the president of AWF that's in Nairobi, and he was saying that the Chinese, that they do care about conservation. I mean, it's hard for me to tell if he is saying kind of positive things before the announcement, sort of in hope, hoping that to sort of support the Chinese position. But um, I mean, they seem to be really optimistic about it. But I've been trying to follow up with them about how they feel about it afterwards, after um, no real concrete announcements were made. Kobus, what's your take on this? I mean, I, I think the fact that it was mentioned at all, um, you know, is already significant because I mean, usually, you know, it's, it's it's such a condensed document and it's such a, you know, it's it's such a kind of like, you know, kind of Dead Sea Scroll type of document that 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 kind of invites a lot of interpretation. That the fact that it was there at all and positioned there, you know, kind of is, might well have some kind of then kind of policy implications later but uh, yeah i was also i was also surprised that it didn't that 
that there was so little of it, um, especially because it seemed so perfect. The timing seemed so perfect, you know, you know, with, with she announcing the, the, the joint um, the, the joint ban with President Obama, you know, during his visit um, earlier this year. Um, it seemed the perfect moment to announce it, you know, kind of so. Uh, I'm, I'm a little baffled about why that wasn't, why it's such low-hanging fruit. It's such a clearly popular choice. You know, it, it would have been such a feel-good moment um, that it, it seems baffling that it that it, there wasn't more made of it. Well, there are clearly, in my view, domestic political considerations that are holding them back. Somewhere there's a constituency in China that is complicating this. And there's a faction, a lobby somewhere that is making this more difficult because the political brownie points that they'll get from making this announcement seem on the outside to far outweigh holding back. But clearly something's holding them back. One thing to remember, Um, though, January is the... uh, We're going to have another high-profile Chinese visit to Africa because remember that Africa is always the first stop in the new year, uh, either by the president or the prime minister. So Li Keqiang most likely will make his stop in, uh, will come to Africa as the first overseas trip. And there may be an announcement then. That's the only other thing that I can think that they maybe wanted to save something for Li's trip. At a conference on wildlife trade in uh, in the China and Africa space that, that took place um, the, the same week as FOCAC, um, so one one of the one of the people who's a, a, an ex ex Chinese ambassador, he made the point that that there is a, a kind of a domestic constituency of people carving ivory artisan carve, artis, um, ivory carvers. Um, and the general, a, a wider kind of public that supports them. And in a kind of a moment of slowing Chinese economy, like, you know, kind of essentially, de, you know, kind of cutting an, an entire economic section's jobs might would have to be thought of carefully and would have to be planned for politically in China. Now, it's difficult for me to think about how many people those would be and what kind of impact it would be in an in a economic space as volatile as China. But, you know, be that as it may, it's, you know, that that's one of the points that was raised. So, Lily, just to wrap up here, tell us a little bit about some of the stories that you are working on that came from your time in Johannesburg covering FOCAC and what we can expect on courts. So the story, the first story I'm working on is um, this focus on developing African manufacturing and generally supporting African industrialization because, well, when they mentioned it a lot and it comes at a time, I mean, so they kept saying, uh, well, now that China is going through this transition and... Um, you know, labor costs in China are too high, so maybe we can move some of that industrial power and manufacturing power to Africa. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting idea, especially because, because of, I guess, because of how much like countries here need it, but then also how difficult that would be. Um, and that, because in a way, it makes much more sense to just move that manufacturing to Southeast Asia. It's closer, it's cheap there, there's already the built-up infrastructure there. Um, Which so, is, of course, what's happening, I mean, in many respects. Right, so... And, and, and then also just uh, pushing this idea that they wanted to, you know, shift the narrative from made in China to made in Africa with China. I mean, it's a very, it sounds great and it would be great if that happened. So I just want to analyze what the challenges to that would be and what and how that is happening. Because there are factories. I mean, there there's the um, FAW in South Africa that's manufacturing vehicle commercial vehicles. Um, there's a there's a company in, in Kenya also that I'm going to try to find that makes um, they produce they make computer servers um, and I mean so there are pockets of it. and of course there's the shoe manufacturing in Ethiopia so there are um, you know instances of it but it's just a matter of how how big can that go you know 
Lily Guo is the Nairobi-based correspondent for the online business site, Quartz. Uh, you can find them at qz.com. Lily, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing on Twitter, what's the best way for them to find you? So my Twitter handle is at Lilquo, L-I-L-K-U-O. And Lily covers a lot of stories from Kenya, not just China, Africa, but she is among the most prolific on the China, Africa story. So I highly recommend that you follow her on Twitter and also to check out QZ.com, Quartz.com to follow some of her writing. Lily, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Kobus. So, Kobus, when most people think about the FOCAC summit, it's obviously in the context of diplomacy and economics, uh, but little discussion is actually paid to the corporate sector, the private sector. So we thought it would be interesting to invite uh, Walter Rigu, who is the Managing Director of China Africa Merchants Advisors Limited, also known as Kamal. He is based in, uh, in Beijing, but also divides his time with Kenya. And for those of you not familiar with Walter, he's rather prolific on LinkedIn and some other social media, which is where I saw him. Uh, they are a, an independent trade and investment consulting firm that focuses on the mining and construction uh, and contracting sectors. They advise clients coming from China into Africa, but also European clients, uh, African clients, kind of going both ways in the trading relationship. Walter, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Now, we are thrilled to have you on now of all times because you were in Johannesburg for FOCAC. Obviously, you're there to try and understand some of the key trends in the relationship so that you can better advise your clients. When you go back to Beijing, what are you going to tell your clients about what you saw in Johannesburg at the FOCAC Summit. Yes, uh, thank you for that, uh, Eric. I think in terms of FOCAC, for me, I view it as in two distinct lights. The first is the macroeconomic, and the second is the microeconomic implications. I'll begin with the first one. I think from a macroeconomic uh, perspective, I think that the conference was quite successful and um, it achieved its goal. What do I mean by this? As you have seen in a lot of media, the big number now is uh, 60 billion because that is the pledge that China has made uh, to Africa. So in terms of this 60 billion, of course, one thing I would like to clarify is that the 60 billion is not going to be investment. The 60 billion is, uh, you know, it's, it's in different forms. It's mainly grants, uh, zero interest loans, preferential loans. Um, they're also going to increase funding to the China-Africa Development Fund and they will also increase funding to some other institutions such as the Africa Development uh, Special SME. So I think from this perspective the conference uh, was quite successful because uh, as we expected before the conference China was to double its pledge and if you recall from the last uh, FOCAC summit uh, the pledge was actually 20 billion but 10 billion got used up in the following year so they've actually uh, gone over um, the expectations. Again, uh, this, the summit was attended by uh, over 50 uh, heads of states and governments and senior leadership, as well as the Chinese uh, president. So I think from this perspective, um, the conference was quite successful. Of course, there are other initiatives that came through. China will um, offer more training for an vocational training to African students. I, I believe the number is around 200,000. Uh, China will also support construction uh, of uh, universities on the continent. So again, uh, the emphasis here is that from the macro perspective, I think 
I think it was quite successful. Um, if we look at the micro perspective, and by micro perspective, I mean if we look at it from a firm level, if we look at it from a company level, I think FOCAC this year um, could have done more. And, and the reason for this is, is twofold. One, if we look at the attendance uh, from the Chinese side, most of the companies were central government um, state-owned enterprises. And of course, this, this follows because, as I mentioned previously, the macroeconomic, um, you know, the macroeconomic factors and the macroeconomic situation, most of this will be implemented by the Chinese uh, central SOEs. On the African side, um, attendance was actually quite low. Um, I'm not sure why this was the case, but um, I think this is an area that the, that the conference could have uh, improved on because we often see this accusation that China is running the relationship and the, the trade is imbalanced. But here we have the most important meeting, most important forum between China and Africa which is actually a legacy from the African side uh, in 2000 that wanted to engage uh, China from a more unified uh, you know, forum as opposed to only bilateral engagement. Um, so the, the point I'm making is basically I, I wish there would have been more African firms because this will not only allow them to understand where China is coming from in a macro perspective, but also direct engagement with the Chinese companies and Chinese people to see how China is changing, to see how China's um, economic is changing, because all these are going to be the factors that influence how um, Chinese firms will operate when they when they come to Africa. One of the big press themes of the, the coverage of FOCAC this year has been that, that the fact that both Africa and China's economies are slowing, and that Africa's economy is slowing on the back of China's economy slowing. Um, how good a business opportunity was this? And like, how much business deals do you think actually got done um, on the sidelines? I think um, there's, again, there's two ways to look at this. Um, China's economy growth has been slowing down. Um, this is not an accident. This was actually been planned um, because as China is moving from an economy that was based on investment in fixed assets to one that would be based on domestic consumption. It was natural that the growth would slow. Now, whether the growth was supposed to slow as fast as it did, that's another discussion. But China's economy has been slowing. And this has meant that commodity prices, uh, you know, have been tumbling in the, last, in the last couple of years. Now, from Africa being a big export of commodities, um, the shock has been quite large. So people have tended to say, you know, the China-Africa relationship is over because the commodity prices are tanking. But I take a very different view. And in fact, our company ourselves, we trade commodities and we have suffered. But on the same, in the same perspective, I think the bigger opportunities coming out of China. What do I mean? For instance, if you look at the manufacturing sector in China, it is now producing at overcapacity. Whether this be steel, whether this is cement, whether this is uh, you know heavy equipment, there is a big overcapacity. So what does this mean for Africa? For me, I believe there is a big chance to move some of these industries into Africa. But there is a lack of understanding from the Chinese firms who are going out of business because most of them are smaller, medium-sized private companies on how to exactly engage in the African continent. There's 54 countries which 
country will they move their equipment to? Which company will they work with in that country? What are the regulations around that country? So there's a lot of information that is missing that would benefit these Chinese firms in moving out. An, an example I like to use is actually the province of Hebei. As you know, Hebei has over 150 steel companies. And these companies, most of them will be shutting down because of government, uh, of government regulations as well as the, the bad market. So where will these companies go? Most of them, even if you visit the province of Hebei, you can see there's brand new equipment just sitting there. So for me, this presents an opportunity. And actually, China's slowdown can be a very big opportunity for African firms, which is why I wish there was more African companies that had attended FOCA to understand uh, the, the macroeconomic implications of this Chinese slowdown, but also to engage with some of these um, uh, Chinese individuals as well as companies. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into that because one of the themes that was at least on the sidelines of FOCAC and certainly in the run-up to it was this idea of offshoring Chinese manufacturing and some of the industrialization and bringing that to Africa. And of course, everybody talks about the shoe factory, the Huajin shoe factory in Ethiopia as really a best example of that. But the New York Times ran an interesting article about the uh, just a couple days ago, let's see about the the difficulties that Chinese are facing in Nigeria, and one of the issues that comes up is the fact that the infrastructure is so poor in most of Africa that you simply don't have the power supply, the roads, the ports to have meaningful manufacturing on the scale of what China can do. Most people focus on the labor, of course. There's lots of labor, but you know, here in Southeast Asia, there's lots of, of cheap labor. But you need all of those other pieces to come together in order to attract private sector manufacturing investment. So when you talk to people about this, this trend, or at least the promise of Africa taking some of that in, how do you overcome the questions regarding infrastructure? Of course, there's two ways to look at it. Um, the first is, in China, the companies are diverse. And that's where we need to start. There is no such thing as a typical Chinese company. So if we take the steel sector as an example, uh, Hebei Iron and Steel has is going to invest in a, in a steel mill in, in South Africa. Now, Hebei Steel produces more steel than the entire Brazil. However, in Hebei province, you will find that there are smaller private mills that are continuing to operate because before uh, the, the market in China was so fragmented and the market was so large that there's different types of companies that exist. So first is to understand which type of Chinese partner would be the most relevant. Uh, I do not see Hebei Steel in, investing in a small African country because first of all you need to understand whether there is iron reserves, is there power, is there water, etc, etc. So this is what I'm talking about when I say that African companies need to engage with China on a macro economic level. Because if you come to Hebei, there's 152 Chinese firms that could be a potential partner. Now, if you're a small iron firm, if you, if you have a small iron mining company, then probably it does not make sense to engage with companies such as Hebei or Bao Steel or the big players. But the smaller size, medium-sized mills may make sense. Once you begin to engage with those companies on a one-to-one on a, on a -one level, then the questions of electricity, logistics, water will all be addressed in those meetings. Because, as I said, there are companies, manufacturing companies that are, you know, they're going out of business in China because the domestic market is oversaturated and it's slowing down. 
So whether it is finding another partner company with electricity, another company that will bring the uh, steel technology, another company that will bring the water expertise, this can be done. And this is what China has done well. It is able to integrate different industries to produce you know, a, one common industry. There are a lot of feeder industries into the steel sector. So it's very difficult to find one person that will be able to do everything. But the steel companies will be able to identify which is the which are the relevant firms to work with them to carry out a project. Um, how about the other way around? How about what is the as as FOCAC opened opportunities for African companies to do richer and more varied um, and and more profitable business with China? Yes, I think it's in the same it's in the same scheme of things because, for instance. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, China is moving from an uh, investment-based economy to one that operates on domestic consumption. Now, people make a mistake to look at China as 1.4 billion and say that, oh, you know, if I go to China, I can market to 1.4 billion. But the reality on the ground is actually quite different. Those 1.4 billion people, uh, the market is very segmented. The people in Shandong province may have different consumption patterns as those in the western province, uh, the the you know the upper class may consume different from the middle, may consume different from the uh, you know the youth, the the, the age, uh, be quite important. How do you market? Do you market through uh, you know social media? Do you market directly? What are the channels to market? So, again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done also from the African side to understand what is the potential Chinese market. Now, once that market is identified, um, I think what you're referring to is the value addition. The value addition that needs to be done in Africa so that it can export to, to, to China. Again, uh, even if we forget about value addition because there's a lot of investment in, involved, if we think of something such as beef in, in, in agriculture, uh, not many African countries are exporting beef to, to China, except Namibia. But it took Namibia almost three years for them to get the certification from the Chinese government that allowed them to export beef. Currently, China imports a lot of their beef from Australia and New Zealand. And one of the reasons is because those countries are able to maintain standards that have been set by the Chinese regulators. So again, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to understand who's the potential customer, what is the regulation, and this needs uh, a lot of work from the African side and as well as input from the Chinese side. It'll take another three years before uh, the next FOCAC, FOCAC 7, which we don't know where or exactly when it will be held. But um, what would you like to see for the one thing between now and the next FOCAC that you would like to see change in the China-Africa commercial relationship? Yes, the, the next FOCAC will actually be in China because it alternates every year. Mm -hmm. This year was in Africa, so the next time it will, it will be in Beijing. Um, what I would like to see is, as I mentioned, what was lacking from this, this, this FOCAC was um, the macro level. There was not enough private companies, there was not enough blue-chip African companies uh, in the forum. So I hope from between now and then, um, most of these companies, or at least a significant amount, um, will really appreciate uh, what this forum uh, represents. Because when we look at it from a, um, from a private enterprise point of view, um, what happens at this forum, the, the macro level, the government, the ministerial declarations will all guide the relationship. Moreover, a lot of the Chinese firms 
follow exactly what the government uh, declarations are. And a good example of this is the One Road, uh, One Belt, One Road initiative that was started um, a few years ago by, by the Chinese government. A lot of Chinese companies now are basing their investment on where the Silk Road is. So if, if African companies can understand what is going on with the Chinese uh, regulations, Chinese government initiatives, and the Chinese domestic market, I think it will, allow, it will allow the African firms to really benefit and get the most out of this relationship. Because if you don't have an understanding of what is going in China, um, it's very difficult to, 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 you know, to find suitable partners to even export to that market. It really requires um, investment uh, in time and effort to, to do this. Well, Walter Rigu is the Managing Director of China Africa Merchants Advisors Limited, also known as Kamal, based in Beijing, but also splits his time with his home country in Kenya. Uh, Walter, thank you so much for joining us on the show today and for your perspectives on the FOCAC Summit. Thank you for having me. If people want to both connect with Kamal, but also to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? I think the best way to reach us, um, you can drop us a message from our website. It's www.camaltd.com, as well as uh, all the contact information is available on the website. And you're also on Twitter too, right? Yes, we're on Twitter and we're on LinkedIn and encourage um, anyone listening to follow us because we try and, um, you know, uh, stay, stay up to date with the news and uh, share with people what we are doing and uh, some of the development in China-Africa relations. Sure. What's your Twitter handle just for people to, to take note of? Our Twitter handle is C-A-M-A-L-T-D. Fantastic. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us and for your perspectives. Kobus, uh, if people would like to follow what you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you? You'll see me on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And we curate a 24-hour feed of the newest China Africa news. I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa stories almost every day. And also, uh, we we put out a newsletter every Monday that has, uh, you know, a smaller selection. So if our Facebook feed 24 hours and our Twitter feeds are a little bit too much to take, this email that we put out on Mondays is really a fantastic resource. We put four or five stories plus a podcast in and a, and a kind of a think tank, deep, deep, long read that goes with it. You can just sign up for that if you'd like over on our Facebook page or at our site at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, uh, just head over to iTunes, type in China Africa, and we'll come right on up right there. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.